Turning then in our chapter that we read in Mark's Gospel in chapter 5, looking at verses 1 to 20 uh, this evening. Mark 5, verses 1 to 20. And in our studies in church, we've been looking at Christian discipleship. And in this communion time, we've been thinking of Christian discipleship and Jesus. We've been looking at him as Lord, and this evening we come to think of him as Lord over demons. Now for a time, uh, the book and film Angels and Demons by Dan Brown captivated our nation. Possibly we've all read uh, that book. And it it brought to our attention uh, the, the presence of demons, something of the work of demons and influence of demons. The English word demon comes from a Greek word meaning supernatural being or spirit. The word can have, in some instances, a neutral sense, but we commonly in the Bible does use demon in the sense of a fallen angel, a spirit being who seeks to harm humanity and to resist the work of the kingdom of God. In the Christian understanding of the universe, the biblical approach to the universe, we recognize a a terrestrial region, a celestial region, and a subterranean region. God and the angels dwell in that celestial region and the glorified spirits of believers. The terrestrial region is where we and the lower creation dwell, and the subterranean region we recognize as being the abode of the devil and the demons. And here in this a tremendous miracle that we've read in chapter 5 of Mark, we see that Jesus is Lord over the demons. Verse 18, the man who had been possessed with demons. We've seen the lordship of Jesus Christ in the area of death when he healed the 12-year-old girl. We've seen his lordship in the area of disease, the woman who had the disease for 12 years and tried everything we thought of this morning. Jesus healed her in a moment. We thought of the lordship of Jesus over nature or danger, the storm and the wind, opposing the disciples in the boat. And we come to this fourth area, the final area in Mark's presentation of the the master of the disciples, and that is Jesus' lordship over demons. And it brings us to to a sense of completion, doesn't it? If, If this miracle wasn't here, if this theme wasn't here and addressed, we would always be wondering. We would be thrilled and recognize that Jesus is Lord over disease. We would be thrilled and delighted that he is Lord over death. We would have peace and assurance that he is Lord over the dangers and trials of our life. But there would always be a niggle. There would always be a question in our mind. What about this other area? What about the powers of darkness? Is he Lord there? Do they have a free hand? Can they do as they wish? Perhaps you struggle with this in relation to your house insurance. You have some valuable item in your safe 
a jet ski in your garage and and you wonder if the fine print on your house insurance covers that valuable item in your possession. And, And so it would be with you and I. What about the powers of darkness then? That they're wild, they're aggressive, they're cunning, they're skillful. What about them? And so this final area, it's really useful to us. It's asserting that Jesus is sovereign Lord in every area, including the area of demons. There is nothing that Jesus cannot do. And this this is a really important segment, isn't it? And I hope as we've, we've journeyed through these four sermons, its importance, its value, its place within the book of Mark and within our lives has, has risen up in your hearts. Mark, is, as we've already been seeing, is about to teach us the practicalities of Christian discipleship. There will be a price to pay, as we'll see next week. John the Baptist is beheaded. Jesus is rejected by his own family, by his own townspeople. There is a price to be paid in discipleship. And what will sustain us? What will spur us on? What will help us to be enthusiastic about following Jesus and paying that price? It is that he is Lord. It is recognizing his glory, his worth, his majesty. He is Lord. This is the one we follow. This is the one we serve. And he is absolute Lord over disease, over death, over danger, over demons. How this must have helped the original readers of Mark's gospel. There they were in the capital city of Rome. Terrible persecutions were raining down on them for following Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified outside of Jerusalem. How they would have thrilled to read this segment in the heart of Mark's gospel. This is the one we're suffering for. This is the one we're dying for. He is Lord over all. How it must help Kabita in Nepal at this time, brought up a Hindu, heard the gospel from her sister, rejected that gospel, but in her time of sickness, open doors indicates she turned to Christ, became a Christian. Her husband left her and married another woman, and and there she is, isolated by her family, abandoned by her husband. But this is her Lord. And how it helps us in a time when our mind and attention and interest can be devoted to Elon Musk, to Bill Gates, to Bezos and their wealth and power and growing influence. This is our Lord. Lord of all. Of death. Of demons. Of danger disease. He's the one to follow. He's the one to devote our life to. He's the one to suffer for. But it's not just about his power, is it? 
It's not just about his sovereignty. And if you read a good systematic theology, this will be emphasized in the section on the sovereignty of God. We're all for that. The eternal decree, election, predestination. We're all recognizing the absolute sovereignty of God, Lord over all. The free will of mankind, the prayers of his people, all included in God's eternal decree. But the emphasis in Mark here is that this sovereign Lord is Savior. He's using his absolute power over death to help a 12-year-old girl. His power over demons to rescue this unnamed man. His power over danger to sustain his disciples. He's using his lordship, his authority in a gracious, in a saving, in a pastoral way. Nero had power. Herod had power. But alongside of their mighty power, they didn't have mighty love. And as we think of the lordship of Christ, this is not an idea, a doctrine, a theory that's a way out there that we subscribe to and submit to, but it's one that's near us. He's sovereign in our life with his grace and power and love. Mark's gospel, this idea of Jesus as Lord over demons is is tied into Jesus' ministry, isn't it? There are three elements of his ministry, and this is to be reflected in our ministry today. It was in the apostles' ministry, and this is why this subject is important for us. There there was Jesus preaching, wasn't there? And and he went round the villages and towns preaching in the synagogue or or in the open field. And and we have our two services every week to, to reflect that emphasis in Jesus' ministry. There was also healing in Jesus' ministry, and compassion for the sick. And and this is something which we we try to do within our congregation. And Ruth and I were were really encouraged by by a text from someone who attends our congregation at the compassion and love shown to them in their time of need. Let me read from that text that was sent. I really appreciate how the congregation have been praying for me. I've been really touched by people asking after my health, and telling me they are praying for me. And so you have been involved in this dimension of Jesus' ministry of compassion, of healing, of reaching out to those who are in need. But alongside of the preaching, alongside of the healing and compassion element, there is this distinct third element of opposing and triumphing over the powers of darkness. And this is something that we do perhaps consciously or, 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 or more perhaps unconsciously through prayer. As we pray for unconverted people, as we witness, as we ask for God's help for people who are struggling in their heart and in their mind, some battle in their life, we're engaging in this conflict with the powers of darkness. In Mark's gospel, there are many occasions where Jesus casts out demons. 
Many before this one, many after this one, but none as detailed as this one in chapter 5. R.T. France describes this exorcism as the most spectacular exorcism. And Mark really emphasizes it. This is evidenced in Matthew devoting 135 words to this story. Mark gives 330. He wants us to grasp, to understand, to take in that Jesus is Lord over demons. The story illustrates, as as we'll see and and try to, to apply into our life, The the promise of Jesus, I will build my church. The gates of hell, the schemes of hell, the plans of hell, the plots of hell, the snares of hell will not prevail against it. As Jesus engages in mission here, as we engage in outreach here, Satan, the demons, they will attack. But Jesus is Lord of the powers of darkness. So here we are then. This is the location far from us here this evening. Over here on the the north uh, eastern side uh, of the the Sea of Galilee. uh, Jesus crossing over uh, with the the disciples in the boat. uh, You remember in the storm and and coming uh, to this part here. And it was a a region that that was quite mountainous uh, as as we see here. And we can envisage uh, the 2,000 pigs coming over this hill at a great rate of knots and then suddenly encountering this incredible steep decline down into the sea and drowning in the sea. Here is Gadara Gergesenes where Jesus performed this incredible miracle for the demons and some of you that have gone to Palestine were maybe there and have seen the place for yourselves. So tonight, We're learning three principles uh, from our our miracle. Demons oppose Jesus' words, works. Demons occupy Jesus' world. And demons obey Jesus' word. Three principles for us uh, to to imbibe into our life and to live out uh, as we can in that third aspect of Jesus' ministry, replicated by the apostles and to be followed by us in the church at this time. Think together then of demons oppose Jesus' work. Jesus arrives on the northeast side of the Lake of Galilee in verse 1 to the country of the Gerasenes. A church is built on that side of the lake in the 5th century, marking the spot where possibly this occurred. Oregon and Eusebius identified that place as being the area where this man was liberated from the powers of darkness. It's modern day. Cursey has a national park and we've seen the steep hill running down to the sea. It did have a Roman settlement. It had a busy harbour. The region is called in verse 20 Decapolis, which means the ten cities and it was a predominantly Gentile region. The region had been severed from the Hasmian rule and those ten cities were showcase cities of pagan Hellenistic culture. They were godless. They followed other religions and standards and cultures. And here is Jesus. 
that he's come to the shores of this region to evangelize them, to bring the message of life and light. He steps off the boat. Do you see verse number two? When he had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him. We suggested that as Jesus crossed in the storm, the storm, it seemed it was something which, again, was caused by the powers of darkness. The demons and Satan did not want Jesus coming to this pagan region of Decapolis. But Jesus calmed that storm. Now he's on the dry land and immediately he steps out of the boat. The man filled with the demons encounters him. Spurgeon in his sermon on this text comments that we are to learn from nature the opposition of demons to the light. Just as bats, he says, and owls and lions and wolves hate the daylight, so the opposition of the powers of darkness are shown towards Jesus. This demon-possessed man, he, he comes to Jesus not out of nosiness, not out of a desire to hear him or to meet him, but he comes to oppose him. See what he says to Jesus. What have you to do with me, Jesus? The man is aggressive. He's questioning. He's in opposition to Jesus arriving in this region. This was their patch. They had control of the pagan Decapolis. The demons were keeping these cities and towns in spiritual darkness. They did not want the Son of God and his gospel coming to them. Their ferocious opposition against Jesus is seen in the words that they use. We might think that the words the demons use in verse number 7 are, are pious words, are words recognizing his deity, are, are polite and reverential words, but, but the very opposite is the case because we know that the words of the devil and of demons are always twisted. And so what are they saying here in verse number 7 when they ask, what are we to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. What they are asking here, what they are saying here, what they are doing here is an attempt to have authority over Jesus. The belief in the first century was that if you knew the name of someone else or the name of a God, if you knew their name, you had power over them. And so we are not to understand the demons here as being reverential and insightful when they use Jesus' full title, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. The very opposite is the case. They are using this full name in an attempt to have power over Jesus and to return him across the lake where he had come. Artie France explains an attempt is made by the demons to control Jesus by an oath, I adjure you by God. To know and declare the name of a person was to, was to gain power over them. Demons oppose Jesus' work. Then the Irish 
Scottish, Welsh, English government, there is the the opposition party. The the party which examines, which criticises, which asks questions of the ruling party. And ever since our world has begun, there has been this conflict between God and Satan, between light and darkness, between Jesus and the demons. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, when he accused Job of serving God for profit, when Satan desired the body of Moses, when Satan incited David to sin, when he accused Joshua, the high priest of sin, when he tempted Jesus to sin, when he incited Peter to oppose Jesus, when he put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. There has always been this opposition of the demons to Jesus' work. This is our first principle. Demons oppose Jesus' work. But maybe you're asking, eh, and how does he do that today then? How, how do we connect with that principle in our life I encourage you not to be scared of John Owen, that sixth volume that I mentioned this morning. He has a really useful sub-sub-sub-chapter in it about this very point. And he calls it the returns of Satan. He's using that parable in Matthew chapter 12 of Satan being cast out of a house And then the house is cleaned up and then Satan returns with greater focus and enthusiasm to try to destroy that house. And so John Owen calls this work of Satan and the demons the returns of Satan. And he applies it to the Christian who is forgiven who is initially enthusiastic about the things of Christ but as the Christian lives on Many times our enthusiasm diminishes and our focus on Jesus is diverted. Satan has come back to tempt, to test, to try, to weaken that initially enthusiastic believer. And John Owen, in his laborious and detailed way, he gives eight ways in which Satan returns to attack the Christian. And I just mention two of them. One is growing in notions of truth without answerable practice. We advance in our knowledge, but we don't advance at the same rate in our godliness. He likens it to a tree that shoots up really fast, but bears no fruit. It grows in one way, but not in the most important way. Another way that Satan returns to discourage us is by the evil example of professors. And it's an interesting section that he writes in this. When we become a Christian, when we join a church, we meet other believers. And we are enthused by by their presence and by their life. But as we get to know them, we unearth defects and weaknesses 
And that initial help and encouragement that we got from other believers then becomes a stumbling block and a hindrance to us. And Owen identifies that as another way that Satan slows us down and hinders us. Satan, the demons, oppose Jesus' work. Secondly, demons occupy Jesus' world. Jesus asks the man his name here, doesn't he? And the man replies, my name is Legion. They're inside of him. This is Jesus' creation, Jesus' world. But the demons are inside of this man. Legion, referring, of course, to the Roman army, company of 6,000 soldiers, the largest troop unit in the Roman army. And they were stationed in this region of Decapolis. But the matter for is, is more than about the number. It's about the grip that the Roman legions had on the region. They were not 6,000 fairies or scholars, but soldiers occupying, controlling, terrorizing a foreign land. And so these demons were legion, not just in the sense of their number, but in their control. They were invaders who had conquered a foreign land, were occupying and controlling a human being because demons occupy Jesus' world. Their aim is to destroy humanity. To destroy the image of God in the Christian, in the non-Christian. To change us from being like God to being a distorted person. And the description of this man evidences for us this incredible function of the demons and identifies their destructive intention and function. William Lane comments, this account more than any other in the Gospels, indicates that the function of demonic possession is to distort and destroy the image of God in man. And we see it here in the way this man was physically. One way in which we are made in the image of God is our power, our strength, our creativity. But but we see here how this man's power is distorted by the demons. No one, verse 3, can bind this man anymore, not even with chains. These three negatives in this phrase in verse 3 emphasize the distortion of power within this man. He's destructive. He's not creative. He's powerful in a way far beyond God has made human beings to be. Here is an evidence of the aim of demons, to take the image of God, the likeness that he has made us to himself, and to absolutely destroy that into something that is ugly and repulsive. Again, God made man upright and innocent to desire what is holy and what is pure and what is clean, but this man, he lives among the tombs. Possibly there's a reason for that because he had no house of his own. He needed a place of a shelter and, and safety and this was a, a place he could find a shelter uh, from the, the elements. 
But there were other caves along by the sea, up in the mountains. But he desired the graveyard. Instead of loving life, he loved death. Instead of loving what was holy and pure, he loved what was unclean. Because demons occupy Jesus' world to distort what he has made and to undo the glory of God in human beings. A virus in the human body fights against the good parts of the body. It distorts, it transforms, it changes, it weakens. And so demons living in this world, working in this world, seek to destroy and distort families, communities, people's lives. Ephesians 2 describes the devil as the prince of the power of the air. Perhaps we haven't thought a lot about this. John Murray argues that this is all connected to our society's denial of the supernatural. Not only have we got rid of God and our society of atheists, but we've also got rid of the devil and the demons. But Murray argues that back, he says, of all that is visible and tangible in the sin of this world, there are unseen spiritual powers. The locals here in the Gerasenes, they, they would have just said, this man's lost it. You know, he, he's lunatic, he's, he's deranged, he, he's, he's mad. They, they would have put down a, a psychological imbalance in the, in the man's head or, or some physical reason for his deranged behavior. But there was far more to it, wasn't there? The demons were there, destroying the image of God, driving this man down a road that was wrong, challenging the presence of Jesus, seeking to intimidate him with, with his power and send Jesus packing back across the lake of Galilee. He's come to evangelize this pagan region and they don't want him there. Tim Donaghy was ill on Friday morning. Half one, he woke up and he couldn't speak. What was going on there? He's on the verge of three months' ministry in Ballylagan. And he's weakened at the very start of it. What's going on with Putin and his brutality, his aggressiveness, this lust for death and power and destruction? His lack of compassion for the vulnerable and the needy. Is it just purely mental? Sin in his own heart? There's got to be more to it. The powers of darkness driving him on as it drove Hitler on in the Second World War. What about Sin City? Las Vegas. Where the mobsters and the vile the darkened acts of mankind congregated in the 1930s and have remained ever since. 
Is it purely original sin, actual sin? This story is surely telling us there's more to it. The disfiguration of the moral and spiritual and physical dimensions of mankind made in the image of God, that there's a satanic drive and power behind it. Demons oppose Jesus' work. Demons occupy Jesus' world. The devil t- crippled a woman for 18 years. The devil tormented the apostle Paul with, with a metaphorical thorn in the flesh. He's called the tempter, the prince of this world. And as we, we think of the, the, the work, the, the, the opposition uh, of the demons uh, to the, the, the kingdom of God, we, we can be afraid. But the, the, the last principle that we're to have and, and the drive of this story is powerful though the demons are, subtle though the demons are, demons obey Jesus' word. They bow to his command. He commands the demons in verse 8 to leave the man, come out of the man, and so they do. They, they enter the pigs. 2,000 pigs being raised. This was a, a large herd of pigs. A, a massive herd of pigs by any standards. Uh, probably being raised to, to feed uh, the battalion of Roman soldiers stationed nearby. Their common food was corn. But a welcome supplement uh, to that corn was, was pork. And Jesus permits the demons to, to enter into the pigs. And why, why does he do this? Well, he does it as evidence that they have left the man. How would the spectators, the people in the region, know of the mighty power and lordship of Jesus over the demons, that the demons immediately... Powerful, aggressive, great though they are, are, are out of this man. The, the, the evidence that Jesus chooses to show that they've left the man is not only the civility of the man, but the behavior of the demons in the pigs. There's the evidence that they have left this man and that Jesus is Lord over demons. For some people, many people, maybe yourselves, you say, well, 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 is there not some moral dilemma here that these pigs then drown in the sea? Well, the answer to that is that Jesus didn't command the demons to drive the pigs into the sea. They did that. He commanded them to enter or allowed them to enter the pigs, but not to drive them into the sea. They left the man and he was transformed. This is the lordship of Jesus. He enters by his grace. And the man who was wild and loved death and lived among the, the, the tombs is suddenly clothed, 
transformed. And the, the language and, uh, and attributes of a disciple of Jesus are used of this man. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. That is the place of a disciple. And he wants to follow Jesus. That is the aspiration of a disciple. This man is transformed. Jesus is Lord of demons. They obey his word. Donald Trump is, is on the, the, the road again to, to want to be elected as, as president. He's making all kinds of claims, one that he will end the, 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 the war with Ukraine in one day. But it's Christ that has all the power. And this area, this last area, he is Lord over. And he will, at the last day, show his absolute lordship over the powers of darkness. Revelation 20.10 says, And the devil was thrown into the lake of fire and will be tormented forever and ever. But even now, as this miracle indicates, the demons must obey his word. The devil is chained, we, we would assert in Revelation 20. He is bound, he is restricted by the sovereign word of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament nations were in darkness. But Jesus has come and in his cross he has triumphed over devil and the powers of darkness. And just as in this case, Jesus promotes his mission in this pagan area by conquering the powers of darkness. As we witness, as we reach out, as we pray, we do so in this consciousness that Jesus is Lord over all, including the powers of darkness. And so demons oppose his work. Demons occupy Jesus' world, but demons obey Jesus' word. This man is not allowed to follow Jesus, is he? Perhaps it was because he was a Gentile and, and how difficult this would be perhaps as Jesus ministered primarily to Jews and, and it teaches us that there is a place and a role for each of us and you might fit better in your community than someone else would. This man was best in a Gentile region. Jesus doesn't silence this man as he does other people because this region was not prone to the insurrectionism of Galilee. And, and so there's also a time to speak and a time to be silent. And in some instances, you will refrain from speaking about Christ because they will just mock you and, and deride the precious pearls. At other times, you will speak because there's an open door and a listening ear. And Jesus sends this man to witness where he himself intended to go. Jesus gets in the boat and crosses back over the lake, but Jesus' vision 
Jesus' desire to evangelize this pagan region of Decapolis is fulfilled not by Jesus personally, but by his ambassador, his servant, this man, whom he sends to witness in that pagan place. Sometimes Jesus saves an individual directly. Them sitting with the Bible and the Holy Spirit is sent down to transform their hearts. Sometimes Jesus sends you or I to witness to someone. And through our witness, Christ's saving work is done. Jesus is Lord over demons.